We are on the second week of this journey with Jesus as we blitz our way through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we're going to read from chapter 2 of Mark, uh, the opening scenario that is Mark 2, 1 through 12. And to draw you into all this, I'm going to ask that you read with me. Let's do this together. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. Because they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking such things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Dear God, we come here together today and we sing our praises to you. For in some way, shape, or form, you have touched our lives. Perhaps there have been moments when we've seen you act and we too have been amazed. We long to see you work in the fullness of your power. And so we gathered here this morning, taking some time out of the busyness that is part of all of our lives, knowing that this hour is not the be-all and end-all of our Christian experience, but that it, that it is important. This is the time when we come together to praise you and to lift our prayers to you in the presence of others who are seeking you or who know you well. This is the time when we gather and we get a little bit of coaching, like a boxer between rounds, knowing that we've got to go back into whatever the challenges of the world are and whatever the fight may bring to us. And some days it feels like a fight. So God, we're listening. We're listening for nuggets that you would give us that would make us wiser for this week. We're listening for those bits of truth that will help direct our pathways or that will give us the ability to make wise decisions. We ask that you'd meet us in this place. We ask that as we go out into our worlds, in all the directions that we scatter as a church family, that you will walk with us and that you will operate through your children in such a way that people are continually amazed by what they too are learning and by how they see you working in us. 
We pray for those family members and those friends who we know who are struggling through life or who are walking along trying to do it all on their own strength instead of leaning on you. Put us in the right place at the right time to help guide or nudge or encourage another. To share what we've learned, not as the elite looking down, but as one beggar showing another where we found food. For people are desperate for hope and healing and peace of heart and direction from you and the power to make the most out of life. So God, I ask that you would make the rest of the time that we have here fruitful according to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. The uh, football team that most of us follow is not playing this weekend. Didn't know if you knew that. <laughs> but I'd like you to consider a question about that football team. Would you consider Tom Brady to be an expert or an authority on Super Bowls? Yeah, I, I think I would. Uh, there's nobody else who has, in a 20-year period of time, taken a team to nine Super Bowls and won six of them. The right team doesn't always win. Sometimes it's the other guys that have a miraculous play. Sometimes it's our team that has a miraculous play. But I think that after that kind of uh, demonstration of ability, that we could safely say that uh, we may not be able to say uh, with absolute agreement among everybody that he's the best quarterback that ever played. Some would say that, some wouldn't. But that he is an absolute authority on what it takes to get a team to the Super Bowl and to win a Super Bowl because he's demonstrated it on the field. Do you agree? So I'll ask a similar question. Do you believe that Jesus is an authority? Many people in our day wrestle with this idea. They wonder is the Bible really true? Is the gospel story about Jesus really true? And just talking about Jesus doesn't necessarily settle the matter in their minds. It takes something else where mastery is demonstrated on the field of expertise, the field that is demanded, that establishes somebody to be an authority in our minds and in our experience. And this morning we're going to look at the moment when it became clear that Jesus was an authority to be reckoned with in the matters of knowing God, faith, grace, and redemption. Jesus dealt with critics in his day too. People were asking great questions about whether the story is true. The, the skeptics of his day were religious critics for the most part. But whether we realize this or not, the Bible continually confronts these questions and raises them to the surface. Dr. Fred Penny, a Canadian pastor, makes an interesting observation. He says, when people see Christianity as a religion to join, like some join the army or others may join a golf club, it produces nominal Christians, people who call themselves Christians but don't live like it's true. Ooh, that's scathing, isn't it? But we need to hear stuff like that. He goes on to say, but the gospel of Mark is different. Mark's gospel presents a vivid picture of Jesus based on the experience of his close friend Peter 
Mark wants to tell us and persuade us that Jesus is for real. He wants us to place our faith and trust in Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus has a message that he brings with authority. So here we are in week two of our journey with Jesus. We're blasting our way through the gospel of Mark. If you weren't with us last week, we're going to be doing this from last Sunday all the way to Easter Sunday, and we're taking on a chapter of Mark's gospel each week. We're not going verse by verse, but we're looking at a key passage in each chapter that is part of the highlight of that chapter so that we're moving with the rapidity of how Mark presents the gospel of of Jesus um, to us. Our focus this morning is on chapter two, and this is the moment when Jesus authority was revealed. So our focus is on revealing this journey with Jesus and the authority that belongs to it. There are three factors in an equation that tie this all together this morning. Here's the first one, an impossible situation. Verse one starts and says, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So there's a question that already automatically rises for us when we read these two verses. Why was there such a crowd at the door of this particular home in the town of Capernaum, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee? Part of the reason is that the last time Jesus was there, he stirred up quite a frenzy. The opening chapter of Mark's gospel that we looked at last Sunday focused on the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He started with clarity about the good news of God. There are three statements that he repeated over and over in that town and in every other town that he went to. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe. And that was the core of Jesus' message. Then Jesus called the first four disciples to follow him. We looked at this last week as well. There were two sets of brothers. First there were Peter and Andrew and then James and John. They were all fishermen and they left their nets to follow him. Then in Capernaum, there was one amazing night of healing. Jesus had gone with these first four disciples to the home where Peter lived, and his mother-in-law had a fever. And so this amazing night started as Jesus chased the fever from Peter's mother-in-law, and then one by one, people started to hear the story, and they brought the sick and the diseased and the demon possessed to Jesus all night long, and he was healing people over and over. We discussed some of, these, some of the thoughts that, that really need to be applied when we talk about the healing ministry of Jesus. Let me just remind you in a, in a snapshot form that the healing ministry of Jesus does not rule out the use of doctors and medicine. In fact, one of the gospels is written by a doctor, Luke. Second, the healing ministry of Jesus is never permanent. And so we read about the resurrection of Lazarus four days after he's put in the tomb dead, and yet Lazarus dies again. He doesn't live forever. And we also noted how the healing ministry of Jesus is selective. He doesn't heal everybody. Even on this one amazing night in Capernaum when people are bringing their sick friends and their diseased friends to him all night long, the point comes when Jesus leaves and there's still more sick people. That was not his entire purpose in ministry. Those things came from an Anglican pastor, Alvin Lewis, who who brilliantly wanted us to, to look 
clearly at the healing ministry of Jesus, not to be afraid of it, but also not to project it in ways that promote falsehoods. And then just as suddenly, Jesus left, leaving the people in the town of Capernaum absolutely puzzled. The morning came, and the crowds were looking for more, but Jesus left to find a solitary place to get away and pray to the Father. And in that moment, Jesus chose prayer time with the Father over popularity with the people. He prioritized prayer and a mission focus instead. In the morning, even Simon Peter and the others had to go look for him. And when they found him, he didn't come back with them to Capernaum. Instead, he brought them to other villages where he preached the same message all around the region of Galilee, which meant that all around the region, people kept hearing the stories of what Jesus was saying and doing, and yet Jesus kept moving from village to village. All of this led to an impossible situation on the day that Jesus returned to Capernaum. The house where Jesus was teaching was so crowded that there was no room for more people. I don't know about about you, but I love the symmetry of those two words, no room. Luke, giving Mary's memory, tells us that there was no room in the guest house on the night when Joseph and Mary arrive and Mary's nine months pregnant, ready to deliver this child of God. And then those same two words, no room, are used by Mark, who's writing Peter's memories in his gospel, telling us that there was no room in Capernaum because so many people crowded into this house and were desperate to hear Jesus' teaching. What an amazing transformation from no room that night to no room to get any more in the presence of Jesus. And then we discover the second part of this equation. The first is this impossible situation which is now met with a persistent faith. Verse three tells us more of the story. Some men came. We don't know who. We don't know their ages. We don't know anything about their background. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And then I love this verse. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever considered the actions of these four friends? We all have friends, but these guys were friends. Everybody else hears that Jesus is back and they fight and they elbow to get their bodies into the room so that they can have proximity to Jesus and they can hear what he's saying. But not these guys. Their first thought was to find this one friend who mattered so deeply to them and they were not going to come to hear Jesus until they could bring him into the presence of Jesus. The house was filling up, and they had to get creative about how they would fulfill this goal. Why were they so persistent? Now, there's some clues that the gospel lays out for us in everything that leads up to this moment. They had heard the clarity of Jesus' call. They had heard Jesus say, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, and to issue forth that call to repent and to believe the good news. 
they understood that because of the arrival of Jesus, they were living in a new day of new possibilities all because of Jesus. They also could see and they could hear that the entire town of Capernaum was buzzing about what happens when Jesus is in the house. Folks, good things happen when Jesus is in the house. Can you say that with me? Good things happen when Jesus is in the house. You always want Jesus in the house, right? Fevers were gone. Diseases were healed. Demons left the building. Even a man with leprosy had been made clean. It's no wonder everybody was talking about Jesus. And then two factors kick in to work here. The first was their love for their marginalized friend. Wait a minute, some of you are saying, I don't find that word here in my Bible. Who says that this person was marginalized? Well, the Gospels give us several insights about common beliefs at that time. In John's Gospel, we we read about a blind man and the disciples see the blind man and they ask Jesus this question. Whose sin was it? Was it his or was it his parents that caused him to have this predicament in life? And Jesus says, either. God's at work here. In the Old Testament, we have Job who goes through these catastrophic events and has three friends who at first seem like the greatest friends in the world. They come and they sit with him for a week and they don't say a word and then they open their mouths and everything goes bad. They keep reminding him of the common belief of that day. You must have done something to bring this on you because there's always a cause and effect relationship with everything bad in the universe. It's terrible theology. It's harmful theology. It wounds people when we do stuff like that. And it's not true. We live in a broken world where sometimes bad things fall on good people, on faithful people, on Jesus-loving people in the same way that they do on others. What God does is he meets us in the midst of that. Special needs people were not treated with dignity in the first century world. But these four friends were the kind of people who would tear off the roof to get their marginalized, often forgotten friend to Jesus. That's the first factor. Here's the second factor at work. Their faith in the power of Jesus to heal or to help. Jesus is the one who calls attention to their faith. Why does he do this? He had just watched this whole scene play out as they tore the roof off of that house. I hope it was Peter's house. <laughs> the historians say that this was most likely the, the home where, Peter had, uh, where Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law and they've recovered the foundations of that house. So the, the group of us that are going to Israel in the summer, we, we were watching some film about that as they, they took us to the, the foundations and we're gonna see that this summer. I'm kind of excited about that. But think of what happened when they climbed up onto the roof of that, ho- of that house. First, there was a, a top layer of thatch, which to the best of my knowledge is, is a layer of sticks and uh, hay and uh, brussels and weeds that, that are all kind of uh, worked together and woven together to, to have a thick outer layer. And then underneath that would be several inches of soil, dirt, that gets hauled up onto the roof and dumped there. 
and it would keep some of the weather out. It would also make it a little bit warmer. And then underneath that dirt, something had to keep it from falling into the house. There was a layer of stone slabs or tiles, more like, that were also on top of wooden slats that rested across the structure of the roof of that house. So imagine, Jesus is taking all of this in. As they go through the thatch and the dirt with their hands and they remove the tiles and they have the wood slats. Do you know what happens underneath that? It creates an opening. And at each stage of the opening, there's dirt and there's dust and there's hay and it's falling in on the people who are just below that. You know what they do? They elbow their way to get over a little bit farther and there's an opening all of a sudden right in the middle where they start to lower their friend. And once they get all that opened, there's natural light that comes in through the hole that they've created in that roof, and it creates a natural spotlight where all of the focus is all of a sudden on that paralyzed man on his mat and the reactions of Jesus. And in my mind, I picture Jesus looking up while everybody else is upset and brushing off the dirt and angry and ready to curse out those guys. Jesus is just standing there smiling and saying, this is awesome. (laughs) And he's the first one to realize that these friends knew how to be friends. Their love for their marginalized friends, friend was so great that they tore the roof off of the house to get him to Jesus. I have a question for you. Is there anybody that you love so greatly that you would do that for? Is there anybody in your life who needs Jesus and does not know Jesus where you would literally tear the roof of a house to get them to Jesus? I think there are people like that here at North River. I can't tell you how many stories I have heard from people who found their way because they met a friend and a casual conversation started and more developed and they eventually find that this person is looking for something more and so the friend that comes to North River says, I've got the place for you, come with me. And little by little they learn things that change the whole direction of their lives. If there's somebody that you have in mind It's really on your heart that needs to know Jesus. I have a question for you. What is stopping you from tearing the roof off to get people to Jesus? Here's our big idea for this morning. When faith aligns with the authority and mission of Jesus, things that seem impossible change. There are things that formerly seemed impossible that God does when our faith is aligned with his mission and with his authority. And this is one of those moments when all of that comes together. So we have this impossible situation which is matched with a persistent faith. And then the third piece of the puzzle is an occasion to bring clarity about Jesus' authority. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? So here's what had happened. The teachers of the law had seen this whole scene play out and had heard the words 
Son, your sins are forgiven, and instantly they go into judgment mode. Why is he speaking like that? Who does he think he is? Doesn't he realize that this is blasphemy, that for only God can forgive sins? You would think they would kind of put those thoughts together and connect them, but they didn't, right? You and I do that knowing what we know today. He goes on, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And notice what he does now. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. If you have a pen out, underline that sentence. That is the controlling sentence of this section of scripture. Jesus wants us to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. We might think this is a miracle story, and a miracle is certainly a part of it, but Jesus saw the miracle as an occasion to teach about his authority. That's the central thing that's going on here. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all, This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let's break this down. Jesus saw an opportunity that nobody else saw that day. The crowd saw an opportunity, but they saw an opportunity to hear the hot rabbi, and so they're they're jostling to get in place. The four friends saw an opportunity to get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. The teachers of the law saw an opportunity. Their opportunity was to find fault with the revolutionary leader named Jesus who was sweeping into town again. Only Jesus saw this as a moment for revealing the true nature of his mission. This is why when Jesus saw the faith of the four friends, he immediately said the words, Son, your sins are forgiven. He wanted them to know what their faith ultimately needed to be in. And it wasn't just faith in a miracle worker. It was faith in the Son of God who comes to forgive the sins of men and women in the world today. Jesus knew about the bad theology that people applied to the sick and to the special needs folks. He knew about the confusing roles and the hypocritical customs of the religious leaders. He knew that the crowds would never get enough of his power to heal. Jesus didn't simply come to be a miracle worker and to make it easier for a few to survive. He had come to display his authority as the Son of God who forgives sins. So imagine the impact when they all heard Jesus say together, Son, your sins are forgiven. Whether this man ever walked again He could know right then and there that his sins were forever forgiven. No longer unworthy. No longer an outcast. No longer wondering what he had ever done to deserve this. No longer rejected. No longer looking in from the outside. No longer marginalized in any way. He could now see himself as Jesus saw him. In light of that, telling him to get up and walk was the easier part of the equation. Can you imagine that? Do you know why you come here to North River Church today? 
Some people come because they have to. It's a family thing. I know I was raised in a family like that. I didn't have a choice. I had to come to church. And if, if you've come with your family and it's an absolute necessity, I get it. I want you to know I was there too a long time ago. I actually learned some things in doing that and I hope you do too. And we're glad you're here. And we're glad that your folks value you enough to make it mandatory. Some people come here looking for a community to belong to. And what matters most isn't necessarily what's taught, but who the people are, wondering, do I fit in, and will I belong, and are are people going to treat me well, and and can I become a part of something? And that's good, too. Some people come here looking for answers to tough questions about life. They've been seeking and searching, and and somebody has said, come along with me, and I'll help you dig, and we'll, we'll find out. Some people come here because they're ho- they are hoping that the experience will make them feel good. Can't tell you how many times over the last 30 years I've had somebody meet me in the door and said, I don't know why I keep coming here, but I feel good every time I do, and I feel better when I leave. Can I say something about that? <laughs> I'm glad that people feel good. I'm glad that you feel good when you come here. But making you feel good is not why we do what we do. <laughs> Can we be clear about that? There's something at a much, much higher level that's going on. And better than feeling good is when you can come to the place that you are absolutely forgiven and set free to become the person you were supposed to be all along. What Jesus knew then is that we all today need to encounter the one person who has authority from the very God of heaven to tell you that your sins are forgiven and that you are set free. And that person is Jesus Christ, and nobody else has ever been appointed with the same authority that Jesus continues to have. All right, if you've heard all of that, how can you know today that your sins are forgiven forever? I want to talk a minute about redemption. The moment that you come to a reality of realizing that you're missing out on something, There is the awareness that redemption is needed when guilt, shame, and brokenness reveal that we need a redeemer and that we can't fix ourselves. So three simple concepts. The first is redemption announced. Ever since Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and read these words from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Ever since that time, redemption has been announced. At the end of saying those words and reading them, Jesus rolled up the scroll and then he said to that small audience, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine the jaws that dropped that moment in that little synagogue in Nazareth? Today, all this is fulfilled in your hearing. That's who I am. That's what, about is, what is about to unfold. The second concept, along with redemption announced, is redemption accomplished. This is what the cross and the resurrection are about. Every, ever since Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and rose from the tomb to display his power once and for all over sin and death, everything that is ever needed for our redemption has been done. But the third piece is the most important part. Redemption applied. This is where you and I repent and we put our trust in Jesus as the Redeemer whom God has sent to rescue us from our own sins, from our own self-destruction. If you are in doubt about whether you have been forgiven 
or if you've just now come to the point of surrendering your pride and your life to God in Jesus. I want you to repeat these words after me in a very simple prayer. You can say them silently or you can say them out loud. God hears. Dear God, I admit that I have been blinded by my own sins. I know now that Jesus has accomplished everything needed for my redemption. Please apply his grace to my life right now. I willingly transfer my faith and trust from myself thinking that I can save myself and I transfer my faith and trust to Jesus. You know, if you say something like that to God and you mean it, he begins to change your life from the moment of that act of surrender and the moment of that act of transfer of trust. That's the moment when redemption gets applied. Up until that point, it's an accomplished fact that the pathway is there, but you haven't accessed the pathway. And it's through that kind of personal response that God operates. When faith aligns with the authority and mission of Jesus, things that seem impossible change, including the way we see ourselves. 